You're listening to Season 6 of Fried, the Burnout Podcast with your host, Kate Donovan. Fried exists to hashtag end burnout culture, to help listeners release any shame, blame, guilt, or judgment that you have about burning out, and to create spontaneous moments of healing through recognition of shared humanity with other people who have experienced burnout and lived to tell the tale. Fried and its associated Facebook group are free resources provided for you from our hearts. Our paid work includes keynote speaking and one-on-one coaching. You can find information about that at katedonovan.com. And now, here is this week's Healing Packed episode. Hello, Fried fans. This week on Fried the Burnout Podcast, I am very very excited for two reasons. One, because you all asked me for a very specific episode that I was afraid I wasn't going to be able to get. And we got it. And two, the person that we got to do it is someone that I've admired for some time, who I found out after I invited him on the show that he was a fried listener during his burnout process. So it's a very full, full circle moment. I'm very excited to introduce you to Newton Cheng, who is a husband and father, a world's champion power lifter, and the director of health and performance at Google. He spent his 14-year career at Google overseeing programs that support the physical, mental, social, and spiritual health of the Google community. Newton went on mental health leave in January 2022 because he was struggling with depression and anxiety, and he was ashamed of how he was showing up as a husband and a father. He returned to Google determined to share his story in order to add to the conversation around burnout and mental health and to help others feel less alone. Newton, so glad you're here today. Welcome to the show. I am honored to be here. And we we talked about this a little bit before we started, but I just wanted to say thank you for what you do. Thank you to your community. This feels like it's come full circle because I was listening to you while I was on my burnout leave. And here I am uh, back here to have a conversation with you. And I want to be of service to you and your community because you've done a lot for me. Isn't that just wild, you guys? The first time when when Newton and I spoke the first time and he told me that story, first I cried a little bit and then I called my mother because because I needed to share um, how cool that just how cool it all was and how wonderful it it all connected. And so Newton, the, the thing that people asked for when I sent out a form recently, a question on my Facebook group, I said, what are we missing here? What are some episodes that you haven't heard yet? that I can give you. And a bunch of people, the most common answer was, I want to hear from somebody who burned out at corporate and stayed, who didn't become a life coach, a speaker, a business owner in some other way. And I had a hard time because people typically don't have the impetus to share their story if they're still at their company, nor do they have PR permission, for instance, to share parts of their story. So I was like, you guys, this is going to be a tough one. And within a week we were scheduled. So, so everybody knows what we're going for today. This is the answer to one of your queries that um, we're filling in for you. And so I'm going to take a step back now, Newton, please share your burnout story and we'll take it from there. Well, if, if this is what we collectively need, I think the universe provides. So, so here we are. So I'll start my story first by by emphasizing some of the things that you said in my background. So I work in the area of health and performance. 
and I am an expert at the intersection of health and well-being and performance at an individual and collective level. I live it uh, via various aspects of my life. I'm a world-class athlete. Despite all of that, like that's a significant amount of expertise. Despite all of that, I still burned out. And I want to call out, you, you named these feelings of shame and guilt. And it's easy for me to describe the way I went or the reason I went on leave in January 2022 because I was overworked. And that's what the th my therapist put on the paperwork because, you know, that's what we all say. But it was really, I was ashamed of how I was showing up as a husband and father. And that is the most precious thing to me. And I couldn't have that anymore. And so I wanted to name that because that is real and it's human. So from there, let's dial back to March 2020, the beginning of the pandemic. And going into the pandemic, I was already stretched thin. I love my job, but I drive myself pretty hard in its intense environment. Then the pandemic happened and everything got turned on, on, on its head. And it was clear we were in this time of crisis. So knowing that suddenly we were going from working on, on site to everyone isolating their homes, we pivoted the programs that we offer uh, to serve people in their homes via digital programs. And that was a huge, huge lift. But I really told my team like, hey, we are the helpers in this culture. So we're going to show up and we are going to take care of people because that's what's needed. This is a time of crisis. You look to the helpers. We are the helpers. And so we pivoted um, where we could. We jumped in to give extra help. We showed up more for each other with more empathy. We were more open. We did all the things that we were asked to do, especially in a time of crisis. Um, this, went, this went on for a few months. And then in the summer of 2020, I was in a, a meeting where, you know, we were all on video chat and everyone's a little thumbnail. And it was my boss's meeting. And we were just going around talking about how are we doing? And for whatever reason, I felt moved to say something real versus a, you know, extended version of I'm fine. And uh, surprising myself, I started crying. And I said, right now, I, the number of days that I'm proud of how I'm showing up as a father is going down and I don't know how to turn that around. And that was the first time I had ever cried at work. And that conversation, it opened up the conversation for others to share similarly, but I can't say it changed anything right then and there. Now, fast forward to the fall, they needed leaders to step into other roles. So I took on some additional roles and I essentially doubled my workload. By November, 2020, that was the first time where I started to see like, I'm really struggling to get out of bed. Like, I love my job. I want to get to it because I feel like we're working on really important stuff. And I was really struggling. February 2021 was the first time, like, I physically couldn't get out of bed. And I had read about this in, in terms of others' experiences with mental health and depression, but I had never actually felt it. And it, was, it wasn't so much like a physical paralysis. It was overwhelming dread. So from there, I started seeing the employee assistance provider. Um, and he told me I was exhibiting early signs of burnout. Now, fast forward to the fall and I had uh, started going to a new therapist and he put me through an initial intake assessment and he said, well, you're showing major symptoms of depression and anxiety. 
And I, I was a little shocked and I was like, well, I know I'm exhausted and I'm grumpy, but isn't this just what it's like to work hard? And he said, well, yes, but it's also depression and anxiety. And so there were two ahas for me there. One was, I just didn't have the awareness or vocabulary to describe what was going on with me. And then two, this was not the first time I had felt like this. This mapped all the way back to probably my teens. So there was something to unravel there of like, okay, I'm, I'm pointing at the pandemic as the reason I'm in this state, but maybe there's something deeper here. Now in November, there was this interesting um, coincidence of events where first I went and I won my first world championship in powerlifting. The following week, I was giving a keynote at an internal health and well-being conference, and I could have talked about all the amazing stuff we're doing around health and well-being and the opportunities with technology, but that felt really inauthentic, especially for where I was at. And so instead, I told them, like, yeah, we have all this stuff going on, but here's what's really going on with me and with a lot of the humans around me. And I told them, I'm, I've been suffering with anxiety and depression potentially for longer than I think. Like I said, this could be going back years. And I don't know how to turn this around. And that was it. Like that was, you know, it, it was it was a much more eloquent keynote than that. But <laughs> that was the key message. I'm like, I don't know where to go from here. And so from there, I, um, because I was going to do this as a keynote, it was this kind of impetus to say, oh crap, I can't just put this on a keynote that'll be recorded and then have my team see this. So I told my team, I'm going to do this talk. I told my boss's team, I'm going to do this talk. And then I planned for going on leave in mid-January. Um, I transitioned out. It was very uncomfortable. I felt like I was letting a lot of people down. I struggled with feelings of shame, of self-judgment, like maybe I'm just too weak. I, I was raised in a culture where we talked a lot about mental toughness. And this felt like the opposite of that. And, um, but what I knew was I was not showing up the husband and father that I wanted to be. So something had to change. And so I took a step away. So there's a lot in just that story. There's a, a lot of moving pieces in that story. And the biggest one that I want to point out right now, and this is something that I encourage people to do. Now, you are sharing this story within your company at both an uncomfortable position because of your expertise and also at a privileged position because of your expertise. <laughs> you know, like the, the, there's an intersection Absolutely. there that makes you a little bit more vulnerable, but also gives you a little bit more permission at the same time. I often ask people to share as much of their stories as they're willing to share, because that's the only way to really ask for what you need. Typically, even if we would love to be able to say, you can go in and say, I need leave. And everybody would say, okay, great. That's not the way the world works. In order to find, to encourage people's grace for you, they have to know at least part of your story. Yeah, actually, so something you just said there that it elicited maybe an aha for me was mm -hmm. I, you know, I shared 
there, there were some forcing functions in there. Like there was the keynote and I needed to be authentic. So I had to share. And then therefore I had to share with my team. There's something I'm trying to, uh, suss out for myself of, you know, Brene Brown talks about vulnerability is all about connection. And was it actually those events or was it that I felt so alone in carrying this that I broke first and I said, I don't care anymore. I have to put this out there because this is too heavy for me alone. So according to uh, a, a lot of theory of behavior change, like behavior change theories, there's uh, something called an action cue, which is an external event that pushes you mm. to do something that's sort of already waiting at the edge. And not everybody gets that action cue, but we don't know if in a different circumstance, the action cue would have been the shame that you felt around how you were fathering. Interesting. It I, might I have do been. know uh, my whole life is structured around action cues. Like if you left me to my own nature, I would be eating delicious pizza on the couch. <laughs> so <laughs> there's like probably too many action cues now in my life. Yeah, there, there might be. What I would like to ask is if there's somebody listening that's working a job where they don't really feel safe to share their story, but they need something. What do they do? Yeah. I know that's an impossible question to answer, but <laughs> I wanted to throw it out there. Yeah. You know, I, I think there's, there's a few things like I, I very much believe in, I really like the Arthur Ashe quote of, um, start where you are, use what you can, um, use what you have, do what you can. And so if I ground on that, I'd say, you know, we, we think about telling our workplace and like your workplace is not a monolith. It is a community of humans or like, who can you tell? Mm. Let, let's start there. Who can you tell anything to? And then now let's talk about what would you, you tell? So at least in like, let's put out a test balloon. Um, I really like uh, Carol Robin. She's a professor at Stanford. And she talks about, can you share 15% more beyond your current comfort zone? And so I'd say, is there someone where it doesn't, it feels a little risky, but you'd be safe sharing 15%. And now at least you're not alone. And you could talk to them about who else could I share this with? Cause I still feel like I'm not being seen here. And so it, it doesn't have to be a big swing. Like you can, you can chip away at it. This is so funny because I sat here thinking, I don't know the answer to this question, but chipping away at things is always my advice. <laughs> Make it smaller. <laughs> it's yeah, always, I, it always is the same. It's so funny. Yeah. I, I didn't email the entire company saying I have mental health struggles. <laughs> yeah. Well, and you did say that, that, was not you, step one. that you started at some point, you told this story before you told this story, like before the keynote, there was that moment in the meeting where you, you had just a real moment and you cried at work and you were like, this is, there's a lot going on here. That moment planted some seeds for you. So it sounds like even if that wasn't your plan, that's exactly what you did. Like you ate the elephant one bite at a time, you planted the seeds then. And then when you spoke about it, however long it was in between those two events, it wasn't completely shocking. It had been spoken about before, maybe not to everyone as a whole, but it wasn't a shocking to, to you personally. Yes. Yeah. I, I think now, now thinking about if I go back to that meeting, why yeah. did I feel, even if that was 15% beyond, or maybe, yeah. maybe 50% beyond my comfort yeah. zone, 
why did I feel somewhat safe to do that? I think about the way I show up in the workplace is um, I have people pleasing tendencies and that can show up as I'm very helpful. I am make a lot of space for connection and for hearing other people so that we build a real bond. And that can come from a place of care and it can come from a place of neediness. But regardless of where it came from, I had been investing in those bonds with everyone on that screen for a long time because that's how I'm wired for good and bad reasons. And so by the time I shared, I kind of knew where I stood with everywhere, everyone mm. on, on that screen. And so if you see all the research now coming out, now that we've been separated and the workplace has been turned on its head, that social connection is so powerful in the workplace for many, many reasons. I kind of inadvertently pre-invested in that. Yeah. So this to me is a, I just recorded an episode that will release just after yours about quiet quitting and about how mm -hmm. that lack of engagement, if as a short-term coping mechanism, if you have to for a moment, okay. And if you do it because you're burnt out and you don't know what else to do, then it's just a coping mechanism that you're not even choosing. It's just something that's sort of happening. But as a decision, if you're deciding to quiet quit because you feel ignored, unseen, et cetera, you're resentful, that to me is choosing a stance of disengagement. And that disengagement is not just not great for the company, but it's really not good for you and your own health. We need to be engaged with what we're doing for our neural connections to be happy. Yes, absolutely. I, I think it's it's it totally makes sense why you would go into kind of that quiet quitting cocoon, but that's going to hurt your soul. And so for the people who I know who are there, I try to listen, I try to validate them. And when they're ready, I start trying to talk to them. And what do we want to do to, to move you to something that's better for you, whether it's within this role or beyond? Yeah. So this is something that I've talked to my sister quite a bit about. She's um, a chief people officer and she's seen some managers that have a hard time letting people go, even when people are not in the correct role. Mm. And so they do sort of a quiet firing instead mm. of this is not at her current place of work, but in her past. And so what if you feel like you're being pushed out? Should you just leave? Should you have a conversation? Like what, if, if you feel like somebody is on purpose trying to remove you from situations. They're, they're quiet, quiet quitting you, quiet firing you. So just doing enough so that you'll leave on your own without them having to actually make the decision. What do you, how do you handle that? As a first principle, I don't support any form of ghosting a relationship, mm -hmm. whether it's you know, <laughs> with someone you're dating or whether it's an employer. And whether that is the ghosting is regardless of which side it's being done, I do not mm. support that. So what I would want to do is first, if you are in, if you feel like you're being pushed out, but you don't, you're not sure, I would ask yourself, uh, I'm going to reference a framework called the four questions from an author, Byron Katie. Uh, I love these. It's, it's so simple. It gets me out of a lot of negative spin cycles. It's first, is it true? You know, if, if, if you're having a negative experience, maybe you might say yes or maybe. 
And then the next question is, do you have evidence that it is definitely true? If you have evidence, then that's not really quiet firing because someone's probably had a performance discussion with you and you know where you stand. Uh, if you don't have evidence, then I would say, go ask for feedback, whether it's, you know, hopefully directly from your boss. If you don't feel safe there, are there other people who can give you feedback? And then finally, the last two questions are, without this negative thought, who are you? So if you put aside this assumption that you might be getting quiet fired and instead said, here are the facts of the situation, how do I want to show up? I bet you would come up with a plan that's really empowering and helps you make progress. And then finally, if you now reverse and say, who am I with these thoughts? You can see how you've been pinned down by letting probably a lot of uncertainty cloud your judgment about what needs to be done in order for you to understand where you stand right now. This to me dives right into another thing that you talked about, um, about how you were raised with this, you know, must be tough mentality, like mental toughness. And this idea of that I think is often missing in the burnout conversation, this concept of having a lifespan perspective and of saying that this person might assume that they are being quiet fired because their mother used to give them the silent treatment when they did something wrong and wouldn't talk to them for a week at a time. And so now those are the goggles that they wear. Right. And so to me, this is a, a moment of how well do you know yourself and how aware are you of the mechanisms in your own thought patterns that were imprinted on you from the actions of your caretakers that may be skewing the way you're viewing this situation. Yes, I <laughs> the enormity of that question. I know it's, it's big, like it's you, big. you yeah, you 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 kind of set someone off on a lifelong journey to <laughs> um of of self-exploration, which must be done. But I I can think of maybe before I was asking some of those big questions, they've come, kind of come in waves mm. um, throughout my life. And after, like each time you're, I think, at least for me, I know I have this belief that I set my life up, I get things to a place where they're comfortable and I let the machine run. Mm. And then something happens or life changes and the machine starts to like the wheels are wobbling, there's smoke spewing out of the engine and I'm scratching my head going like, what's going on here? And so the latest one I think was with the mental health leave where I, if, if you listen to some of the other interviews I do, I talk about, I have this three-legged stool by which I organize my life. The most important leg is husband and father. Second is competitive athlete because it keeps me aligned across physical, mental, social, and spiritual health. And then last is leader in the workplace because I very much believe in the art of leadership and I very much believe in the work we do. I had let those kind of get out of order where work was clawing its way up the ladder and I was showing up not as the husband and father I wanted to be. And so it became this question about like, I am totally out of integrity with my own values based on choices I'm making. Like no one at work is telling me I'm not working hard enough. I'm just doing it. So how did I get here? And I keep using this phrase, aspiration or anxiety. Like what is fueling the engine of this machine where the smoke is shooting out? And as I've really parsed into it, 
and thought about how I made decisions, the decision to say like yes to another project or yes to a, an additional role, that was driven by anxiety often. Like, well, what if I don't do it? Like, what kind of idiot would pass up this opportunity? Just do it. And then afterwards, I am, like all of us, pretty good at self-deception. And I would explain to myself how this is aligned with my aspirations. Aspiration or anxiety? Yes. This is a big one. This is uh, the the question that I often ask people to ask themselves is um, actually wanting to please or avoiding disappointment. Mm. It's a similar question. You were saying, you were talking before about this people pleasing coming from a place of desire to connect with people, just a natural one, and from a place of need needing to solve something, fix something, do something, save someone because it's the right thing. To me, this, a lot of the underneath of people pleasing, which I believe can be beneficial when done well, I don't demonize any coping mechanisms because I believe they usually have some sort of good intent somewhere. But if the thing that you're trying to do when people pleasing is avoid disappointing people. If the choice that you're making when you say yes to something is avoiding anxiety, then it's time to take another look. Yes. I I think that's, that was one of my ah ahas was, are you helping or are you avoiding conflict, your fear of conflict or your fear of rejection? Yeah. And when I really looked at it hard, it was so much more the latter. For me personally, it was my entire value as a human existed only in so much as I was useful to other people, which meant that I couldn't even get on a tram or walk through a mall or walk down the street without scanning my environment to see who needed help all the time, which (laughs) in turn, in turn, turned into an incredibly large amount of self-neglect because I could not take care of my own needs if I couldn't see them or know what they were because I was never paying attention to myself ever. Yes, I, I think we could we could form a superhero squad called the Helpful Squad, um, where the the double-edged sword of their superpowers is if they don't keep helping, they die or something. <laughs> The worst so comic now, book ever. So now we also, we have a, on LinkedIn, we decided we were going to have a synchronized swimming team and our costumes were going to have flames. And now we're in a superhero squad. We have a lot of, we have a lot of things to do. Yes. So much opportunity. <laughs> so much opportunity here. I want to get back to this avoidance of the difficult emotions. Mostly because we just don't know how to, a lot of people just don't know what to do with them. So I make this choice. I say yes to avoid this anxiety and it's successful for a a long time until I'm overworked and then the anxiety takes over anyway. But one of the emotions that you keep bringing up is shame. And another one that you mentioned, which is so heavily related to being already in a burnt out state is dread. So I want to pick apart shame a little bit first, especially from a male perspective. Women talk about this sometimes, not enough still, but men hardly talk about it at all. So well, we hardly talk about many things. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, this is this is right at the top of the list. This is right at the top of the list. So what made you decide to 
actually start using slash admit to that word and that feeling associated with it? I think two, two things. When I would start to connect with people, especially men, about what I was struggling with earlier before I, I shared really broadly, those feelings would come out. And so there was this dissonance where I'm like, hey, we're all feeling these things. We're all naming them. But why are they in the shadows? Mm. And then for me, actually, there were, there were two things. One thing that happened was when um, I told people I was going on leave, people started calling it my sabbatical. And I mm. kept reframing. I'm like, my mental health leave. And that was very interesting. I'm like, okay, I think you're probably doing that out of respect because you don't know my boundary there. And I very much appreciate that. But I don't think that's helping anyone. Like, mm -hmm. it's not a sabbatical. And uh, people know it's not a sabbatical. But if we call it a sabbatical, we're just reinforcing that we have to hide things. Mm -hmm. So there was that. And then lastly, when I just thought about why am I going on leave? And it was, it kept getting pegged as overwork. I'm like, yeah, but based on my own choices, let's talk about how we got there. Because if we don't do that, like I've talked to other people, I know we're, we're in the same spin cycle. If we don't name what's actually going on, we can't actually address it. Mm. And so I don't know that naming things like shame will move the needle for people, but I knew it was more real. Yeah. And I know it was more spot on and what was going on. So I make a point to say, shame about how I was showing up as a husband and father, because that is real for me. This episode of Fried is sponsored by our partners at Qly.ai. If you're struggling to make healthy changes in your workday that will lead to long-term well-being, I might just have the solution for you. Qly.ai uses a combo of your input plus magical AI technology to help you build healthy habits into your calendar, Slack, or Teams for as little as the price of one fancy coffee a month. By syncing with your calendar, learning your habits, and using its customized formula, Qly will send you break notifications at convenient times throughout the day, reminding you to do things like take a walk, eat your lunch, drink more water, and more. By learning your schedule, Qly will cue you when you actually have a moment to take action. When you're burnt out, making changes can be hard and feel overwhelming. Qly is designed to make it easy and to move with you through your burnout recovery journey. To get started with a 25% discount, head to qly.ai forward slash fried. Fried fam, if you want your sleep to be more restful, I want you to get in a guided meditation before bed. This boosts the time you spend in deep sleep, and that is one of the ways you recover from burnout. Go check out the Sleep Meditation for Women podcast to make your sleep more sleepy. And as a bonus, for the month of November 2022, you can win a gift bag filled with over $300 of incredible health and wellness products. Enter to win in three easy steps. Step one, subscribe and listen to Sleep Meditation for Women. You can do that by searching Sleep Meditation for Women in your podcast player right now. Step two, leave an honest review on Apple Podcasts and tell my friend Katie what you loved about the episode. Step three, screenshot that review and share it on Instagram or Facebook. And while you're at it, tag at Women's Meditation Network and boom, you're entered.
one of the things I talk about in my book is sitting in the muck and not painting silver linings on things before we're ready. That finding meaning in things, we know that finding meaning in things long-term is beneficial for our overall health, all aspects of health included. But painting that silver lining before it's time means that you don't have time to process any of the things that are actually happening. I was on a women's entrepreneurial networking call. And when I moved back to the States three years ago, once I ruptured my Achilles and started walking again, I opened an acupuncture office in New York City, in addition to building my speaking business and doing the podcast. So I was doing acupuncture just two days a week and it didn't really work out. I had enough patience to keep me in the black, but not enough to make it really worth it for me to travel into the city and back home to the city twice a week and and spend an entire day there that I could have done a keynote or something else. And so I was on the phone with these people and I said, you know, it's the first time I've ever failed at opening a business. I've always been an entrepreneur and I've always managed to be successful at it. And immediately the entire call was like, you didn't fail. It's a learning experience. (laughs) You know, kind of like, and I was like, you guys, I'm not upset about the fact that it failed. I'm not saying that I am a failure. I'm saying this venture didn't work. It was not earning me enough money to be sustainable, which means it failed. And it's okay that it failed. Yeah. It, yes. Interesting. Cause I, now I'm, I'm self-reflecting like, ah, crap. How many times have I pulled that reframe on people in the workplace? <laughs> I've probably done that a lot. I'm probably still doing it. Um, <laughs> Half but, of your employees are like new and <laughs> uh, it, it, it kind of feels to me like if, if, I don't know, you, you tried to do a backflip and you landed on your head and people are like, you didn't miss it. You learned how to, exactly. uh, you know, get closer to doing backflip. And you're like, I just landed on my head, like at this party, like, let's just yeah. call this what it, it is. Let's you're just, just talk making about it, it worse now. Yes. So to me, this yeah. is the same as naming shame and just saying, this is actually just what it is. Uh, this is not a sabbatical. I'm on yes. mental health leave. I have anxiety and depression. I'm feeling shameful and I'm being a shitty father. Yeah. And I don't want it's, that. Yeah. It's like, we're not remodeling my leg bone. Like I have a broken leg and I'm going to go heal it. Yeah, exactly. So I want to put that out there to say that I don't want anybody to stay in muck for too long. If you stay in shame spirals and feelings of failure and all of these things for extended periods of time, it can really weigh on your mental health. But if you avoid them totally, it can really weigh on your mental health. So you've got to find that. I I, I like to tell people that the time to move out of the muck is when you're sick of hearing your own story. When you start Mm. telling it again and you're like, oh, I can't believe I'm still telling this same damn story. When you're sick of your own story, it's time to get out of the muck. Look for the meaning, find what will move you forward and take action on that. Can we? What do you feel like? Yeah. Oh, uh, what? Just real quick. What do you feel like gets people there? Like sometimes if I keep hearing the same story over and over, I, I interpret that as like, you're not feeling heard or you're not feeling validated in your story. And so if I can give that to you, I'm going to, and then I'm going to keep an eye out for like, and can I offer you a hand to like lift you out of the muck? 
What do you think triggers people to get to like, I am so sick of telling this story? Time. Hmm. I really do think it's just time is allowing space for things to be what they are for a moment. And then being like, enough is enough. I do think that what you just said is powerful. And I say at the beginning of every single fried episode, I do think that being seen, heard, validated, listened to, appreciated, I think all of those things can be triggers for getting out of the muck. Having somebody honor the story that you're telling is important. It's one of the reasons I do the podcast because somebody else's story sounds like yours and hearing your story honored can help them honor their own. And that can help people get out of the muck. And this is one of the things about, do you guys use HeartMath Institute for anything? Uh, we don't, but I know what, I know who they are. Okay. So the HeartMath Institute talks about coherence and, you know, healers and their ability to like match coherence with their patients, et cetera. And this to me is one of the main reasons why when you're stuck in burnout or any other mental health issue that you shouldn't really go through it totally on your own. I don't really care if it's a coach or a therapist or a friend or a lover or a or an HR professional, or I don't care who you're talking to, but you have to, there has to be some acknowledgement of your story. And there has to be somebody who can be in a share space with you in some way, shape or form to help re-regulate that nervous system misfiring that's happening in you. And I think it's so critical to allow someone the opportunity to witness you. Mm. Yeah, I, I think of that two ways. I, I really like the way you talked about like the rewiring, like someone else is someone else is calm and you know, gifts you with calm. And I'm I'm learning that a lot now that I have kids. Mm. Um there's there's a a guy named Brian Post who I really like on that subject, but I'll, I'll put that aside for a second. The other thing I'm trying to think about is if I use the analogy of like you're kind of in quicksand you need someone on solid ground to lend you a hand. The alternative is I know uh, you, you've met those people who, you know, they, they never got the, le- the, the hand they, they clawed their way out of the quicksand. And so their narrative becomes, I must continue to claw my way out of the quicksand because no one's coming to help me. And you can see like, it does make them successful in certain areas of their life. It can be so isolating and it can be so lonely and it can actually drive people away in other parts of their life. Yeah. I Yeah. And I, I just a reminder, everyone who's listened to the podcast has heard this before, but if you're new to me this week, please know that it is critically important for me for you to understand that nothing you've ever done has actually been alone. And I don't mean to dismiss any of the things that you have done of your own will and strength and perseverance. However, for Newton and I to be able to talk to one another today, probably about a hundred thousand people needed to exist in the world (laughs) because we're using computers and internet and software and keyboards and paper and pen and headphones and microphones and setups and chairs. And I ate pizza before we got on and we both have water that's in bottles and, and, and 
the amount of people that need to exist for each of us to be able to function well in this world is enormous. And so if you feel super alone, you can start by recognizing that. Absolutely. We're every way I slice and dice it. We're, we're interconnected mm. more than we are separate. Yeah. A hundred percent. So now I want to get into another emotion that you mentioned. This is a big one. Let's do it. Dread. D-R-E-A-D. Dread. Mm. Do you remember what it felt like physically in your body? Did you have a physical reaction to it or was it mental? Mine was more mental. Mm. Like I've heard people talk about they've actually lost vision. Mm -hmm. They've experienced physical paralysis. Mm -hmm. Mine was curl up in a ball, like mm. hide under the covers, mm. uh, which, you know, I became quite good at, you know, un until I looked at the clock and, you know, the action cues got me moving. Um, it was this overwhelming sense that there was going to be a never ending things list of things to do that I would never be successful enough at them and it would never stop. But I had to keep going because I'm the type of person who gets the job done, who doesn't quit, who doesn't let people down. So you can you can curl up for another minute but then do the math on your schedule and in order to get the kids ready get to work on time prep for the meetings get to the meetings you must be out of this bed by this time so curl up in a ball and then you have two minutes get up what do you think when did the dread start shifting what did it take i think so while I was on leave, I had the good fortune of reconnecting with two friends who knew me much earlier in life. One who I was friends with since junior high and one who I was friends with through my 20s. And this was before I had become, you know, the senior leader at a, a big company. It was before I had all this practice, you know, leadership presence and mindsets and it helped me kind of reconnect with like, who am I? Like, what do I, what is actually me versus where have I just set up systems around me to make me keep going? Mm. And then what powers those systems? Like there's the logical side of it of like, okay, well, this is the plan. So follow the plan. And then there's the emotional side of it. And this goes back to aspiration versus anxiety. and what I found was that engine was fueled so much more by anxiety. Mm. Like I've talked about my aspirations. Like I want to be a great husband and father. Uh, I want to be the best competitive athlete I can be. And I do this work because I want to change well-being in the workplace. And I see the opportunity to do it. But then if I take it down to the day-to-day -day experience and like, did any of those things get you out of bed when you were curled in the ball? Or like, no, it was fear of missing my first meeting. Mm. And so I really had to ask, like, what, what's going on there? Like, why 
what happens if you miss that first meeting or you are late? And it gets to these things of like, that's not who I am. I don't show up late. I don't show up unprepared. And then there's deeper questions of like, why? Like, if you did, like, what if you weren't that person? And it, you start to see like your kind of house of cards of how you've decided to, like, what's your value to the world? We talked about like starting our, our team of superheroes who must be helpful or else they die. Like that started to crumble really, really fast. And so then I had to ask, like, if not that, what do I want powering this engine? And it went so much more back to those values that I laid out, the connection I can have with other people if I decide to show up differently versus with anxiety. Um, and also this, this kind of like recognition of like, I have to have compassion for myself. There's this, this quote I love. Um, I am every age I've ever been by Madeline uh, L'Engle, mm. where I would like to say, I can just re-engineer the systems in my brain. Like maybe, <laughs> but I'm not even close. So instead I better love Newton for who he is right now. Um, and so one thing I, I did was, um, I, I heard you talk about this with Jim Young on an earlier episode, some of the uh, wounded child work, where I went back and I, I realized, you know, I, I thought about four-year-old Newton, some of the challenges he went through, rejection, bullying, um, psychological abuse, and how that formed into maybe ways that I show up today in kind of like driven by survival or, or a need for survival. And when I said, how would you show up with compassion for this Newton, not tell him, stop doing those things. They're not good, but show up for compassion. That's who he is. And so I came up with this analogy where this can talk about my coping mechanisms. It can talk about what I'm actually good at. It can talk about the privilege I've accumulated so that I can be here telling you this story. I call it my superpowers. And so I think back to that, that four-year-old Newton, I'm like, I know we were in a bad place often. Like, I know we were really struggling to get what we had. You worked your, your ass off. We have so much of that now. We have superpowers. What do we want to do with those for the world now? Because we get to choose. And that, that mindset, that's what said, hell yeah, I'm going back to work. Mm. And what was that going back to work like? So I know a, a big question on people's minds is, okay, so you got some time off, which is great. You had some support, which was great, but that at some point you had to re-enter the workplace. Did you start at a slower schedule? Did you go back half time? Did you jump right back in? How did you feel? What did you do? Were you afraid? Ah, all the things. Uh, I was definitely afraid. I think what I had to do was I had to, again, look, look to my system of action cues. And so much of it was built around, um, I think, infrastructure of meetings around my organization, my team, the projects I run, and then how those fill up my calendar. Mm -hmm. And I just started questioning very heavily, like, what happens if I don't go to this? Or what happens if I redefine my role in this? And I say, you know what? I, I'm not deciding here anymore. You are deciding. Um, or what if I just make a quick decision and then say, now we go. And we're not going to meet about this anymore. And so I started running some of those experiments where what I saw before was anxiety kept me just kind of sitting in the noise, trying to make sure nothing would go wrong. Even if I was showing up like I was empowering everyone, it's like I was still present and I was still giving my time. 
So instead, if I said like, no, 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 um, like one, one heuristic I like to use a rule of thumb is, uh, if it's not a hell yes, it's a hell no. Mm -hmm. Marie Forleo, amen. Yeah. So I just started auditing for like, where is it a hell yes? Either because I must like, and it's a clear, I must, or I really, really want to. And so, um, once I started doing that, I started, I started from, I started with my head above water, we'll say. Mm. Now, uh, my anxious thought patterns, they did not go away. They're still there, but I am more in tune with like, what are they and how are they showing up? And then I've asked a lot of people around me for accountability. Mm. Like I've asked my team for like, am I showing up in a way that empowers you to make decisions? And if they're not giving me a clear answer, I tell them like, well, I'm either going to make a decision here or you'll make a decision here, but we're not going to sit in the middle and waffle because that I think burns energy for both of us and then ripples out into ambiguity in the organization. Um, I think the other thing I've been very careful about is I tend to say yes to lots of meetings just because I like to connect with people and I'm, people think I'm very nice. And I am. <laughs> but then I'm like, hey, this is taking from your family. <laughs> like, dude, what are you doing? So yeah. I've audited that down to like, there's one day a week I have some open slots for that type of connection and no more. Yep. So what it boils down to, everybody, if you read between the lines of everything that Newton just said, we're talking about boundaries. We're talking about priorities, expectations, and boundaries, right? The same stuff we talk about all the time. There is one study that shows something being very useful for burnout recovery. It is boundaries. (laughs) (laughs) That's the only one we've got so far. So there's a lot of information about, you know, what causes burnout and what are the risk factors and all of that. There's not a lot of information about recovery, but one piece of information that we do have, thanks to COVID times and nurses who were really struggling, is that implementing boundaries works. But you have to know where and why you are implementing those boundaries. For you, it was to stay in alignment, to stay in your integrity for your three-legged stool and to be aware of your emotional state from, from which you are making decisions. Those are your, those are your boundary building decision makers, right? Everybody has to know what their boundary building decision makers are. This is why we work with resentment on fried the burnout podcast. It's a wonderful, it's like a resentment is like a stud finder for boundary issues. (laughs) Yeah, I I think we could do a whole other episode on that. I um, I have a weird resentment cycle where it's like first I point it at the people coming to me, of course, and then I say this is my responsibility, and I point mm-hmm. it back in my own yeah. face, <laughs> and then uh, yeah, and then I um have a pity party. <laughs> You're supposed to say, and then I find the neutral middle. <laughs> uh, I get there eventually. <laughs> right. So you have to know what tools you're going to use to realize which boundaries actually make sense to you. And then practice. I often have people practice uh, disappointing people. So if you don't set boundaries, often there's a fear of disappointing people. So I ask people to go into their lives and like your, your job this week is to disappoint three people. (laughs) And it might be about where you're going to eat that day. If somebody says, I'd really love Italian. And you're like, you know, I'm going to push for Mexican today. Even though normally your normal self would be like, I'll find anything anywhere you go and I'll be fine with whatever. 
I, I like that. Yeah. So start with I, the small I, things. Yeah. I, I like, um, I think as an exercise, I'll throw something out first just to say like, okay, like I, I do have a point of view. So give the point of view, let them push back. Amen. Can, can I offer one other reason that I came back to work? And this now yes. goes back to like where I'm really trying to drive with aspiration. That's yes. why I'm trying to do interviews like this. So a lot of this talk around burnout, it's pointed at the individual. Mm. And everything we talked about was what's going on in my own head. Mm. I think there's also a lot of things to look at within large organizations, not just large organizations, let's say organizations around our culture around work and our shared ways of working. And they're not good or bad. They are just, they are as they are, and they've generated value for so many people in the world. So let's not villainize anything. But I think it's become clear that some things need to change in terms of maybe structures, incentives, culture, and again, our ways of working. And that can only be done by people partnering inside the organizations with people like experts like you outside the organizations. And so we talked about my superpowers. Let's go into privilege. I am lucky to have this job. I am lucky that I've had leaders who have helped me build a successful career here. Um, I'm lucky to have had the time in this career to accumulate political capital. Now, coming back, I can ask, that's a superpower. What do you want to do with it for the world? Like, do you want to go for another promotion? Like, no, that's not why you said you work in this field. We like I took this this work working on health and well-being in the workplace because I saw the opportunity for employers to improve the lives of so many while doing good for themselves. The incentives are aligned. So I am back in the workplace. I'm here to spend the capital that I've accumulated, spend the privilege that I've accumulated to make the hard and difficult changes to the system. Um, and I don't have all the answers but I have to be able to sit in this seat and try things and then maybe fail and maybe, maybe ding my own career, but I'm, I'm going to do it and I'm going to share what I learned along the way. And that's how change is going to happen by more leaders doing that, spending the capital they want, not just for career progression, but um, how do we make the system better for us all? And on that note, I will say, if you are not following Newton Chang on LinkedIn, you want to because he asks these provocative questions and because of how connected he is and because of his position and because of how eloquent he is, people are really getting into these conversations on your LinkedIn posts. And there's really actual shift happening because of that. So if you are interested in what are people talking about, about changes in the workplace? What's working? What's not working? What do we need? What do we not need? What do we need to move away from? How should we think about it? What's the mindset? What's the framework? Please go follow Newton on LinkedIn. It's been a full hour, if you can believe that. It goes by quick. It flew by. Do you have any parting words? I will just reemphasize as I have shared my story, the people who have come to me privately to say I'm suffering too, they are people like me. They're people um, 
junior to me in organizations. They're my peers. They're above me. They're all around us. You know, if you look at the statistics, it's true. And then just what I've seen, um, it's always a surprise who comes in to reach out. And so if you are suffering and you're in a situation similar to me, you are not alone. And if you just need someone to hear your story and know that, that it'll be listened to and kept private, send me a message on LinkedIn. The other say, thing I'll do is like, again, call out two leaders who are in a position like mine. Change doesn't happen. Transformation doesn't happen without true leadership. True leadership requires those of us with the privilege to take some risks, to try some things, maybe to take some dings and fail, but we got to do it and we got to share what we learn. And that's how we're going to move forward. All right, Fried fans, this was a big one with a lot to talk about, everything from corporate structure to personal shame. There's a lot of things covered in one episode. So if you need to go back and listen again, I think that that's not a terrible idea. And if you need help formulating a conversation around how to talk to your leaders, how to talk to your boss, how to talk to, you have two really important options available to you through Fried. One is the Facebook group. You're always welcome to ask in there. The second is four times a month, we offer free office hours where you can pop in, ask your question, get your question answered directly on the call for no cost at all. We are here to support you. And in order to get those invites, you just simply need to be on my newsletter. And I'll throw a link to that in the show notes. I'll also throw in Newton's uh, LinkedIn link so you can follow him. And just a reminder that it might be scary to share your story, but like Newton suggested earlier, maybe just 15% and maybe to a safer person. We all have to start somewhere because keeping these stories inside is not helping any of us heal. Be gentle with yourselves, be kind to yourselves, and I'll see you next time. Thank you.